Whenever I meet newcomers to Unitarian Universalism, one of the things I talk about is the, the role that the community plays in Unitarian Universalism. It, it's generally, it's, it's hard to make broad sweeping generalizations about anything, but the community is a bigger part of our congregation, congregational life, I believe, because we, we're drawn to church on Sunday morning. We come here not to please a deity and get some points that might make it more likely that we, we enter heaven, or at least most of us don't. We, we, we come, or I guess most of us do, to, as part of a... <laughs> as part of a, a spiritual quest in community. Uh, you know, we could, we could sit and, and meditate at home and pray at home and tell ourselves a sermon, but, but we come here for some kind of community uplift. And when I talk to newcomers about our beloved community, I'm thinking about the, the support that we give each other. The meals when someone is sick. The joyous get-togethers. The confidences we share when times are tough. The deep friendships. That community is warm and that community is fuzzy. And I'm sure whoever I'm talking to understands that's the kind of community I mean. As we proceed along our, our spiritual path, though, it's important to realize that community can also be cold, and community can be hairy. Community is fickle. It pats us on the back one day and laughs at us the next. The same community that brings a casserole to our door when we're sick complains when we're late with a project that we volunteered to complete. Communities nourish us and communities drain us. And communities are an essential part of being human. Communities nourish us and communities drain us and communities are an essential part of being human. I've had my struggles at times with the religious communities I've been a part of. And I've come to believe that those struggles, what I've learned from them, have been as important to my spiritual growth as any books or any teachers. Our religious communities are laboratories where we can examine ourselves and how we interact with others, where we can get better at making love the spirit of all of our interactions. When Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield first became a novice monk in Burma in the 1960s, a lot of the older monks in the monastery um, were not really there for religious reasons. In, in, a, in a land without social security, some of the older men took their vows and shaved their heads so they would be supported by dana, the, 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 the charity of the community, the offerings from the community. And, and you know, Jack Cornfield said about them, ah, Buddha, Shmuda, you know, I'm here for the free food. And so that's how they spent their, their final years. They had no real respect for Buddhism, and Jack had no real respect for those members of his community. One day the abbot 
of the monastery had a talk with, with him. Jack, do you understand the practice of bowing to the senior monks? Oh, yes, I understand, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I, bow. I always bow to the senior monks. No, I, I don't think you understand. You've been bowing to the most senior monks, the people like me. But you're supposed to bow to every monk more senior than you are, which meant everybody else in the monastery. Now, when we talk about bowing in a, in a uh, monastery in Burma, we're not talking about the offer you the lotus that you know we might sometimes do. We're not even talking about the deep Japanese bow. We're talking about going from a standing position to kneeling on both knees, putting your head on the forehead on the floor, rising three times. Every time you encounter a more senior monk in the monastery. So Jack began doing that, bowing three times to everyone else in the monastery. And for it to be genuine, his, his problem was he had to make this genuine. So he had to focus on something about each individual that warranted respect. So that practice became part of his spiritual growth, finding something to honor in each of the monks in his community became a gift that helps him find something to honor in every person he encounters throughout life. Community is hard. Community is messy. There's a, you'll find a quote from a Christian pastor in the, in the order of service who wrote a book called Community is Messy. The Judeo-Christian Bible is filled with examples of messy communities. Moses got so pissed off at his community for building a golden calf and dancing around it that he hurled and broke the first tablets with the Ten Commandments. Then, the way business policy specialist Richard Hammermash tells it, Moses led the Israelites for 40 years on a journey that could be walked in 40 days because he realized that he had to change his people's culture from one of passivity and slavery to one of self-government. I have nothing quite that dramatic to share about my experiences in UU communities, but I'd, I'd like to talk about a couple some years back, when John Morehouse was the minister here, he and I used to chuckle from time to time over UU political correctness, the, the desire to be what I might call uh, more liberal than thou or less offensive than thou. <laughs> and it was in the days when more and more we were switching uh, some of the pronouns in, in, in the songs we sing to the feminine. I had seen a comment on a, on a UU email list objecting to that. This person thought that we should have a neutral pronoun because although there are some people who see themselves as male and some people who see themselves as female, there are some people who don't identify with either gender and we're omitting them by choosing either the male or the female pronoun. Well, John and I had a, got a big laugh out of that. I guess neither of us was aware of anyone like that. 
And hold that thought for a minute. This year at UMAC, the Unitarian Universalist Mid-Atlantic Community, which I attended along with Carol and our son Carl, I met the second transgender person whom I've gotten to know at UMAC over the years. This was a transgender woman who still had a lot of, of, of masculine characteristics. And I had a hard time using the right pronoun for her. We, we got to know each other pretty well. We, we, we became friends and we were in the same workshop. You know, we'd spend an hour and a half in a workshop of six or eight people every, every morning. And, and I kept saying, I couldn't, I, I just kept saying things like, he, I mean she, did that well. Or, you know, and I keep, kept using the masculine pronoun and correcting myself. So one day as we walked from, from the um, workshop to lunch, I apologized. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. It's easy to get confused. I'm confused too. I don't feel entirely male or female. I'm somewhere in between, and I wish we had a neutral pronoun in English like they do in Swedish. <laughs> the UMAC community had brought me side by side with what I had thought of as a joke just a few years earlier. When I describe UMAC to people, I describe it as summer camp for the whole family. One week a year for UUs from New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. We get together on a college campus near Allentown, Pennsylvania, with activities for all age groups. But that's not an adequate description. To understand UMAC, and, and again, it's, it's the Unitarian Universalist Mid-Atlantic community, not the Unitarian Universalist Mid-Atlantic Conference or anything like that. It's community. And to understand it, it would help to imagine a whole year of church <laughs> and think about all the warm and fuzzy community stuff that goes on in a church over 52 weeks of the year and smush all that into one week. Okay? So far, so good? Now, take all the cold and hairy stuff that goes on in a church community over 50 years, 52 weeks and smoosh all that into the same week. Now you're beginning to understand UMAC. It's intense. It's an intentional community and it's intense. Carol and I began attending UMAC with our two sons about 18 years ago. We met some wonderful people there and formed some close relationships. Last year when we had a, um, I forget what you call it, the, with Carl, Labor, Labor Day weekend. The Graduation? Intervention. Intervention, yes. Intervention. Last year when we had the intervention with Carl, uh, one of our very close friends, who was also in recovery, came to participate from UMAC, came to participate in that, in that intervention. We formed wonderful, close relationships. Um, but Carol is better than I am at taking the ups and downs of community in stride. I stopped going after the first eight years or so, badly hurt by some of the stuff that happens in a close, intense community. Among other things, I felt dishonored after being director of one UMAC and the president of two. Carol and our son Carl continued to attend. 
and this year I joined them again. I felt the warm fuzzies immediately, and I've become better at, at letting the other stuff go. Or maybe it's more accurate to say I'm learning from the other stuff, learning from the stuff that happens in community, watching my reaction to it, letting it help me on my spiritual path. The effect of this year's UMAC on me was all about tearing down war walls, letting myself get closer with people that I might never befriend outside of a community like, like UMAC. Transgender person who actually considers herself neither gender. Um, a young man slowly dying and confined to a wheelchair, losing his ability to control his own body. Um, people that I never might, might never walk up to on the street and get to know come and sit beside me for a meal. That indeed is spiritual growth. I've come to realize that I'm never going to change any community's capacity to hurt me from time to time. What I can control is my reaction to that hurt. If that's beginning to sound like a marriage, not a bad, not a bad analogy. As an aside, Nick Murray, who writes a newsletter for financial advisors, said this in a recent article. People do not change. If you doubt this, get married. If you thereafter still doubt it, get married again. You will anyway. There's a story about the Buddha that took me a while to appreciate. It's about a young woman named Kisa Gautami. She was from a wealthy family, happily married to an important merchant. When her only son was one year old, he fell ill and died suddenly. Kisa Gautami was struck with grief. She could not bear the death of her only child. Weeping and groaning, she took her dead baby in her arms and went from house to house, begging all the people in town for news of a way to bring her son back to life. Of course, nobody could help her. But Kisa Gautami would not give up. Finally, she came across a Buddhist who advised, her to, who advised her to go and see the Buddha. When she carried the dead child to the Buddha and told him her sad story, he listened with patience and compassion and then said to her, Kisa Gautami, there's only one way to solve your problem. Go and find me four or five mustard seeds from any family in which there has never been a death. Kisa Gautami was filled with hope and set off straight away to find such a household. But very soon she discovered that every family she visited had experienced the death of one person or another. At last she understood what the Buddha had wanted her to find out for herself, that suffering is a part of life and death comes to us all. Once Kisa Gautami accepted the fact that death is inevitable, she could stop her grieving. She took the child's body away and later returned to the Buddha to become one of his followers. When I first read that story, what the Buddha did seemed uncharacteristically cruel to me. 
sending Kisagatami off on another futile quest. She'd already gone from house to house. Now he was sending her back again. I didn't understand why the result would be different. But as I thought some more about it, I saw that at first she was this weeping crazy woman going door to door with a dead baby. Not an easy object of compassion. We lose patience quickly with someone desperate making demands that can't be met. When the Buddha sent her back, she was calmer with a question for the residents of every household. Have you had any deaths here? That must have led to conversation. She listened. She learned about others' grief. I think she already understood that death was inevitable. What she learned was that she was not alone in her grief. Grief is something we can all share if we approach each other the right way in loving community. We all want our religious communities to be loving and compassionate. Love is the spirit of this church. But because communities are not any more perfect than the people within them, our communities will sometimes fail us. We will sometimes close the door when Kisa Gautami comes knocking with her dead one-year-old. We all need to be more compassionate, of course. We'd like never to fail anyone in our community. But I'd suggest that perhaps a harder task, and one with even greater potential benefits, is to learn how to cope when the community we love fails us. We need to recognize, as Jack Cornfield eventually did, that there is something bow-worthy, something to honor, in every member of our community. And when we feel our community is not honoring us, if we can manage to stay the course and to look deeply into that experience, what we learn might be a breakthrough in our own spiritual growth. <laughs>